Forest City Church. Anyone and everyone. If you have a Bible, um, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Um, it's page 824. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles that have been generously donated. They're, they're like in the front. It's page, page 824 if you need one. Um, but before we do that, let me give you a little bit of context because context is important. Sometimes when we read this, we can just kind of dive into the text and then going, what? There's something like that's happening. And, and for my, my desire is I, I just want to make the Bible make sense. Um, I think for some of us and for so many years, I, I would dive into this book and, and I, I would read it and I just, just knew that there was something more. I knew that there was something more. And, and oftentimes we, we can just miss it. Um, and I, I, I hope that just today you'll get a little bit sense of like why people were so frustrated with Jesus. Now, 50 years before the days of Jesus, there were two rabbis. And two rabbis that had schools of Talmudim, schools of disciples. These two rabbis um, were named Rabbi Shemai and Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Shemai was very, very like conservative. And I, I don't mean that in a, in a kind of political term. What I mean by that is how he ranked the laws. There were 613 commands, and the ways that he ranked the laws were simply this. The greatest one was the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And number two, be holy as God is holy. So everything was about holiness. Well, sometimes we, we find ourselves in traditions where people have preached on holiness as being like one of the centering pieces of our faith. And I love holiness. I love sanctification. But Hillel was different 50 years before the days of Jesus. You can study all of this. This is, this is like all out there in the land of Google. But Hillel, Hillel said that the two greatest commands were love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. And so what you find in the New Testament and in the Gospels, you will find that there were eight great debates. Now, the eight great debates were often the debates of these two that continued on 50 years later. And you can study the two fights that these guys would have. One argument, one argument went two and a half years where they would show up and just debate one another. And the argument, the argument was based on this. Did God mess up creating man? And, and, and here's the thing. For two and a half years, Hillel said, no, no, no. It's good that God created man. It's good that God created man. It's good that God created man. Shemai's like, I think he messed up. Because like we're just, we're not, we're not like doing what he created us to do. After two and a half years, Hillel finally said, and you can, all, you can find this, it's recorded. He literally says, you win. You win. I give up. But since man was created, we are going to walk and we are going to live with joy to please the Lord. So two and a half years. They say, rabbis say that over the course of like these two, they had 316 debates. And they had schools of disciples and schools of followers who were like, "I, I stand, you know, with the Packers and I stand with the Bears. And they were like rivals of one another. So 50 years later, Jesus comes on the scene as this rabbi, and he's different. He's different than ever, every other rabbi. Uh, his whole school of Talmudim looked wildly different than Hillel's and Shammai. And you have to understand that, yes, there were great debates, but there were cultural conversations that were happening. And there were four primary cultural conversations that were coming. The first one was, who can forgive sins? It's interesting. 
Second one was table fellowship. Who can a good Jew eat with? Three was about fasting and the formation and the discipline that comes by being a Talmudim and being an apprentice that fasts. And the fourth one was about Sabbath, which Leonard's going to take next weekend. And what's amazing is you look at the last few weeks, we have talked about the forgiveness of the sins. This is what, when the, when the, when the whole man was like led down, this is what frustrated people. It was like, who is this guy? He can heal and forgive sins? And I love what Bria taught about leading with your need. Now, today we're going to talk about this table fellowship and we're going to talk about fasting. And we're going to try and do it with like some real good Jewish eyes. Because I want you to see this book. I want you to feel this book. I want you to know this book. I grew up in Southern California. Many of you know this. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in um, an environment that was pretty unstable in a lot of facets in my home life. And the one place that I found a level of solidarity was on the basketball court. And it was amazing about the basketball court is as long as you showed up and you were, had shoes and you could play defense, you usually got to play. And I, I, I would play Friday nights. I would play with, at this old church super late at night. And I just played with a bunch of middle-aged men. And I was like seventh grade and I just hustled. Saturday mornings, I was at Las Colinas and I was playing with really tough guys from another side of, of the tracks. Um, oftentimes, my dad, during the summer, when he'd drive me to L.A., because uh, I you know, couldn't stay home, he would drop me off at a park, um, and he would just say, you're going to get beaten up, but just keep showing up. And I was like, that's a great motto for my life. And I would go play on the streets, and I, I, um, I did. I would take just hits, and I just kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And what I realized was, after a long period of time, Basketball was like this, this place that had the most diversity in my life. It didn't matter, like, race. It didn't matter age. It didn't matter gender. As long as you wanted to play, you were accepted. And, and I remember reading recently Eugene Peterson's biography, autobiography by Wynn Collier. And, and, and Wynn says that Eugene often would say that all theology is rooted in geography, and, and he lived in Montana, and he, he I, I thought Montana, I thought fly fishing and mountains and open space. But the more that I began to recognize, as I started to study Eugene Peterson's life, was his dad was a butcher. His mom was like a Pentecostal who would preach to truck drivers in Montana. And like, I, I began to recognize, oh my goodness, his whole life was rooted, yes, in Montana, but in these certain spaces that began to shape his understanding of how the kingdom of God works. You move to certain places like New York City or Vegas, and there's a restaurant in both New York and Vegas called Beauty in Essex. If you've ever been there, you walk in and it's a pawn shop. It's a massive pawn shop, guitars and, and old like posters. It's, it's fantastic. And I had no idea. I just passed it in New York City the first few times. I was like, oh, it's a pawn shop. It's a pawn shop. It's a pawn shop. It wasn't until I was in Vegas when my wife's like, no, it's a restaurant. I was like, no, it's a pawn shop. She's like, seriously, walk in here. We walk in there, and there's some random lady standing at the very, very far right corner of this, this pawn shop. And she keeps going in and out. Some people start showing up and talking to her and she ends up dismissing certain people, and certain people she lets in the back. And I'm like, what is going on? I finally walk up to her, and I was like, what is this? And she's like, it's a restaurant. I'm like, what? And I'm like, 
She's like, ah, we got a long wait. I was like, oh, I don't fit the part. Um, so we end up like getting a reservation. Um, we, the next time we're in Vegas, we go, and the thing opens up, and it's just this back room. He would have just missed it. I said, someone didn't tell me. And it's just amazing sometimes when we start to think about this, this, this picture of table fellowship. What you're going to see is the way that Jesus interacts and his understanding of what it meant to be a rabbi, what it meant to be the son of man, what it meant to invite, was wildly different than a lot of the religious elite had been taught. So, with your Bible, turn with me, page 824, or to Luke chapter 5, verse 27. We're going to try and break this down. It says this. After this, so after like Jesus heals, I just love this. This is how this story flows in the way that Luke writes. After this... Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, or Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. Now, a tax collector was the most hated person um, outside of Samaritan to a Jewish person. A tax collector was someone who extorted, stole, took, and gave to Rome. Day after day after day. They were hated. And I, I don't know how to like even say that word with such intensity and emotion, but they could not stand these tax collectors because money was already tight. They were already living in occupation, the Jewish nation, and their own people were working for Rome and extorting them. I don't know who that person would be for you. Who's the person in your mind that you, you need, I'm not going to have you say it out loud, but who's like the person or group of people that you're like, I just can't stand them. Because we all have tax collectors. We all have tax collectors. And it's so beautiful. Jesus is just walking and, and he sees a tax collector named Levi. Without ever even chopping with him or having a conversation, he just simply says, follow me. Follow me. Leakarai, come follow me. This is like language. You can be my disciple. You can be my Talmudin. You can be my student. And it says this, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. So you have to feel the human ache here. This man knew he was hated. Every time that someone paid him, they probably cursed at him, slandered him, spoke behind his back. He did not have friends. The only other friends he had were probably the other tax collectors who were hated as well and despised. And all of a sudden, this rabbi sees him and says, come follow me. You can be one of my students. Continues on, says this, then, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. So this guy becomes a disciple, and what does he want to do? I want to get all my other friends who are hated, despised, have been pushed to the margins, who haven't been seen by the people of faith or the people of religion or the people who run the temple. They have not been seen by the rabbinic system. And all of a sudden, this rabbi sees them, and the guy goes, I want to throw a party with all my friends, and I want to invite Jesus. Now, I don't know what a large number of tax collectors is, but I'm imagining at least 30. Imagine 30 of these tax collectors in there, and you can imagine a group of tax collectors walking into town for some meeting at a house, and all of a sudden, it begins to ripple through this little town. It says this, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained 
And the word complained in Greek is the word egondesmai. And I love just the way it sounds because it just sounds with such emotion, like just so frustrated. This guy's messing the whole system up. He's not doing it the right way. And they complained and they were bitter and they were frustrated. And they said this to his, meaning Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Such a great question. Why do you eat with the people we hate? Why do you eat with the people on the margins? Why do you eat with the people we can't stand? And what's amazing, too, is the word sinners was understood in a different way than it's kind of understood today. The sinners were known, and and let's just clearly define what sin is. Sin is to live beneath God's intended best. Okay, so oftentimes the way that we define sin is like, it's like an archery term, and we miss the target, which missed the mark, and I get that, I get that. But really, when you break the word down in Hebrew, it means to live less than God's best. And so we all do that every single day, every one of us. But in that Jewish system, in that Jewish way, it was people who did not follow purity laws, who ate meat with blood in it, who ate pork, who did their own thing, And you had to understand that those who did not play by the purity laws could actually make other people sick. So it was a bit of like, you got to stay away from those sinners because they could infect you and then you could actually infect your family. It was people who did not actually go after the temple rule. Yes, they could be living a a lifestyle that felt outside of what God's best. But more than that, it was people who did not choose to live kind of that Levitical life purity, clean, in or out. And there was a hard line. And so Jesus sits with people who are like, yeah, I I don't go to the temple and I take money from the Jewish people. I'm sitting with the enemy. And these Pharisees, and Pharisees often get a bad rap. I want you to know I don't have shade towards Pharisees because they were groomed in a system that taught them you gotta protect this and you gotta be about this at all costs. You've got to think about this. You've got to protect this. You've got to be about this at all costs. And they're looking at this rabbi who's doing things, and they can't seem to figure it out. And Jesus overhears, like he always seemingly does. And look what he responds with. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but the sinners to repent. Now, friends, I'm getting old. I'm getting old. I went and had my eyes checked for the first time. Like, I can't, I can't really even, I, I can tell that's Gene DeFalco up in the very, very back, but barely, but barely. My, my, my eyesight is, um, and I didn't even think I had a problem till my son, he wears glasses. I was like, ah, let me see. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Um, I feel like I got creaks. I got aches. Um, I need to have surgery on my foot, um, which is another whole story. And I'm like, I am breaking down. And there's been a moment for so many years where I was like, I don't, I don't, I, I'm fine. I'm stubborn. I'm fine. I don't need to go to the doctor. I don't need to go to the dentist. I don't need to go to the doctor. I don't need, I don't, I just, just keep working, keep going, keep doing. Um, but you know what? What Jesus is saying here. 
he's saying is those that have a knowledge of a need, it's evidence that God is at work in their life. What's amazing is the Pharisees didn't have a knowledge of a need. They were like, ah, man, this is just wrong. This is just wrong. This is just wrong. They've got the right answer. They've got it. They know it. They have it. Why is he doing this? And, and, and really one of the ways that I think for many of us, as we come into our faith journey, there are seasons where I'm sure all of us know this book well enough or we forget that we still need a doctor and a rabbi and a Lord and a Savior. The truth is, every one of us, if we're not careful, can become a little more like a Pharisee. So how do you live a life that you actually are going, whew, I know I need help. I know I'm not finished. I know I have not arrived. How do you live a life where you constantly see Jesus as this good doctor who's constantly inviting you to repentance, which in Hebrew is the word teshuva, which literally means to come home, to come into the presence, to be whole and holy and spiritually healthy, to be that kind of person. Is there any area in your life if you're really, really honest, you go, I got a little Pharisee in me. I do. I get really tripped up when I see prideful people. And you know what it feels like it does in me? Is it gives me permission to try and outpride them by taking them down. That's not biblical. I see it on Twitter all the time where I see someone just making fun of somebody else. And I'm like... I just want to destroy this person. There's a little Pharisee in me. Or sometimes, you know, I don't know if you've been, been watching the news, but have you heard what's happening at Asbury College, University, in Kentucky? For the last week, there's been this revival that's been happening. And 24-7, and thousands of students, people traveling into Kentucky, of all places, to have this moment of just prayer, and it's been going on. And a lot of my friends... People I love are like, that's not real. It's sensationalism. And when I was young, the Pharisee in me would have been like, that's not real. But now I'm just kind of like, that's so beautiful. That people are having an experience with God. Why, why do I have to mock that? Why can't I just go, maybe it's real. Maybe there's something happening in their hearts that's leading them. We all have a bit of Pharisee in us. Do you know what part of Pharisee is in you? Because when you can be able to name that, that's when you can actually say, oh, I do need a good doctor. I do need a good doctor. I do need a good doctor. But what's really going on in the Pharisees is they can't stand because they were taught. They were taught with whoever you ate with, you accepted. And here's why. Because it was all connected to bread. Can I have like one, one person I'm going to serve you. use you, Russ. I'll use you. Now, if Russ came to my house, and he's a Dodger fan, so um, if this Dodger fan came to my house, and I, I served him a piece of bread. You can touch that piece of bread, all right, if you don't mind. And I broke the bread, if you want to break it, and I handed him that piece of bread, and he ate it. Culturally to the Jewish nation, that would mean that we were bound to each other, that we were in relationship with one another. 
that we are connected to one another. So if you, if you actually go to John chapter 13 and you sit with Jesus, and what's Jesus doing? As he, and he, as he actually does the, the Last Supper and communion, he's breaking bread and he's handing it to his Talmudim. And what's amazing is if you read John 13, it says Judas takes the bread and he leaves and he never eats it. Because Judas was saying, I'm not bound to you. I'm not bound to you. What frustrated the Pharisees was that actually Jesus would sit with people because he was like, oh, if they could be bound to me, they could actually experience what my father was all about. They could see just through my life that they mattered to God, that they were accepted, that they were loved, that they were worthy, that they mattered. And what was amazing in this whole thing and the whole discourse was, well, why are they worthy to be accepted? Are there any people in your life that you're like, I don't think they should be accepted? Are there any people in your life that you'd be like, ooh, I don't think they should be accepted at your table? Or if they were seen with you, some people would start talking. <laughs> They'd start talking. Oh, my goodness. Can you believe that Laura ate with them? It's like junior high all over again. I can't believe I sat at that table. Oh, gosh. I was in Chile a number of years ago. And um, we were there, and um, I will never forget this moment because um, they told us we had to catch a cow. And um, I've never caught a cow before. And so three or four of us, we, 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 we wrangled the cow. And we start walking this cow, and it was, it was New Year's Eve. And, and the tias, the tias were like, had cooking up like something. But it looked like cilantro and onions and tomatoes. And, and they were like putting in this massive like pot. And I thought they were making salsa. I had no idea what was happening. And all of a sudden I walked this like, this, this cow. I sort of bonded with this cow. Again, I have no idea what's happening. And then the uncle, the uncle takes out a knife. And he basically kills this cow in front of me. And then begins to turn right here in this, like, artery, all of this blood. And then, you know what the Tias do? They put the, the perfect salsa underneath, and the blood just starts to drip into this thing. And it just starts coming, and they just start stirring. And I'm like, what is going on? And blood coagulates, and it becomes jello. And after, like, 15 minutes, they all sit down as... The uncles are beginning to cut and, and prepare the cow. This is the appetizer. And they start to cut up chunks of blood. And they serve it to you. I'm sorry for my pregnant friends right now. Um, I'm sorry. I just thought about that. We'll do that next service. Um, but I, I have this moment where I'm like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And we've all probably been at a table when someone serves us something. And you're like, yeah, I'm not sure how that's going down, but it's got to go down, right? Like, we, don't, we, we, we just have this moment where there is this sense of I'm at someone's table, and I probably, it will be rude of me not to eat. So somehow we create a concoction of salt and pepper and water and soda, and we put it in our mouth, and we drink that, and we just swallow it down. We, we have this moment. But there's an interesting thing. When we're at the table, we know how to, like, do something that we don't want to do. It's just, like, getting people to the table. 
or being invited to a table that somehow dis- disrupts us. So all of a sudden, these Pharisees are going, and really what they're talking about is this, and this is what every one of us has to discern in our everyday life, is accepted, acceptance and appropriateness. What is acceptable and what is appropriate? What is acceptable and what is appropriate? And this, this is the way in which Jesus just kind of threads that needle just threads that needle of what is acceptable and what is appropriate. And for many of us, oftentimes we don't know because other people are talking, and in that moment we don't know, and so we just step away. And the people who pay are the tax collectors and sinners of our day because they miss out on experiencing the gift and the goodness and the grace of God. Stay with me because I want you to see this, and then just a couple more verses. Look what it says the next Verse 33, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, Jesus, yours, Rabbi, go on eating and drinking. They haven't been able to catch him as to why, why, why he eats with tax collectors and sinners, so they move it. Well, now let's just pick on your disciples. They don't seem to be fasting enough. And the Pharisees fasted twice a day, typically on Mondays and then typically on Sabbath. And Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. They're like showing up to tables and they're like, yeah, let's eat. Let's eat, let's drink, let's enjoy this moment. And the Pharisees are going, your table is accepting people who shouldn't be accepted and the way at which your disciples are behaving isn't appropriate because they should be fasting. And when people fasted, they, they looked hungry. They looked sad. And somehow the more hunger and the more sad and the more down, the more holy you were. So the Pharisees were like, oh, all Jews do it one day, we do it twice, because we're more holy. We're more holy. They were connected more to the lens of Shammai, holiness is the great. But look how Jesus answers. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. I mean, just imagine going to a wedding, and you looked up at like the, 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 the bride and the groom, and they're not eating, and they're like, we're fasting. You'd be like, what? What kind of party is this? And Jesus is like, do you guys understand? And they didn't, and he knew. He was just kind of giving them a little breadcrumb because he, he hadn't fully told them who he was. But he's like, hey, they're celebrating the feast, the wedding, the celebration. But when I leave, they'll get back to fasting. But for right here and now, they got to enjoy this moment. And so he understands that they don't get it, so he tells them a story. Verse 36, he told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say, the old is better." Valentine's Day is coming up. Does anyone have a wedding ring on them that I can borrow for a second? Or oh, a, 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 a diamond wedding ring. Anyone got a diamond wedding ring that I can borrow? Oh, per, oh, yeah, thank you. 
My wife will love this. Thank you. Uh, okay, so, so, so here's another thing about Scripture. Um, the rabbis taught that, um, and, and this is so different from the West. In the West, we, we were taught that one text has one meaning, and you've got to find that one meaning. And if you know that one meaning, boom, you're good. But the rabbis taught because when Moses... His father-in-law, Jethro, came to him and was like, dude, you, you think you can handle all this? You actually need more voices. You need more judges to kind of discern the problems. And he had like 70 people come. And so rabbis actually see the, the Bible as a diamond. So if like you can kind of like reflect and refract and like turn, different parts will reflect out. And that's the beauty of the text is that when you turn it, you can start to see. And so in the remaining time, what I want to do is I want you to see this passage from two different ways. And I'll tell you what I think it means, but I also want you to know this is kind of a fascinating piece of how the, the Jews would do this. They called this midrash, which is such a fun word to say. makes you a little itchy, but it's called midrash, where you get curious about different interpretations. Could it be? What might be? And this is what God was intending. So Jesus tells a parable, and he says, hey, just imagine this. Imagine this. You, you guys are asking about my table. You're asking about my disciples. You're asking about, like, fasting and, and, and table fellowship. That's like, the, that's like the cultural issues of the day. I get it. I get it. I get it. But let me just ask you a question. You don't take a new garment and cut a piece and add that to an old garment, do you? No, because the new part's going to shrink in the dryer, and it's going to actually affect both garments. That doesn't work. And he goes, you know, but the other thing that you do is you know about wine. He's like, yeah, I know you, Pharisee. You know about wine. He, he, we all know that the old is better. The old is better. No one makes new wine and puts it into old wineskins. Because that affects, because that old wineskin's already been used. You're not gonna add, you're not gonna add a bunch of new wine to the old wineskins because it's actually gonna affect and, and it's gonna actually expand and it's gonna break that old wineskin. But here's the other thing: no one likes new wine. No one likes two buck chuck from those days, especially fresh off. It's too tart. It's too sweet. It hasn't sit. So here's how one interpretation has been from this parable. Is that Jesus is saying, I'm doing a new thing. I'm doing a new thing. I'm doing a new thing at the table. I'm doing a new thing. You Pharisees join my new thing. And what you see in the text is like, oh, maybe that's what it is. The problem is, is the last few words of the text says, but the old is better. And when you get to the New Testament, farther along, you're going to see as the church and the spirit, and there's all of this stuff that's being established that, yes, there is a new thing that is happening. Yes, there is a new thing that's happening. But what's amazing, what's amazing is, what is Jesus really doing? So if, if you were just to kind of just turn the gem, turn the text, turn it a little bit, and you begin to get more familiar with what you've read in Luke, Luke is telling you the history of the Jewish people. He's connecting this story to what, was, what has been. And Jesus, what is he saying? Oh, I'm not doing a new thing, Pharisees. I'm doing what was asked of us all along. I am fulfilling that vision. This, this old wine is still better. And you think about the, the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, the Jewish nation. This is, they were supposed to be a light into the nations. They were supposed to have mastered table fellowship. But what happened? They just separated themselves and were like, I don't want to be with the Samaritans. I don't want to be with the Judeans. I don't want to be at the ends of the earth. I don't want to be with any of those. I don't want to be with the Babylonians. I don't want to be with any of those people. And what's amazing is God keeps writing people into the genealogy of Jesus who weren't even Jewish. 
and they still miss it. And he keeps raising them up to have influence so that they will care for the people in the margins and sit and accept and showcase what repentance and beauty and relationship and the presence of God is all about. But what happens, what happens, what happens with the Pharisee and me is I get caught up in labels. And what are those people going to think? I don't even mean the people at the table. What are are the outside religious people going to think? Because we don't know how to do this dance between what we accept and what we feel is appropriate. And instead of just trusting Jesus and trusting the Spirit and recognizing that this whole story has always been about inviting everyone to the table to experience Christ, sometimes we just get a little nervous, don't we? We just get a little nervous. And that's, that's the story. <laughs> That's the story. And, and then it just ends. <laughs> like Jesus just ends certain parables. And then he's like, oh, yeah, another thing. We'll talk about this next week. Sabbath. Sabbath. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us today? And this is sometimes the harder part of teaching the text straight from the text because you're like, what do I say is the main thing? Here's the takeaway. What do you consider appropriate? And what do you consider acceptable? What do you consider appropriate? What do you consider acceptable? And the stuff in your life that you don't feel is appropriate, do those, still, do those people or circumstances or situations, can you still make space around your table for them? And this is where I think for, for many of us is where Jesus is inviting us to just continue to have a seat open, continue to, to have to stretch. And, and trust me, I've been at certain tables that have made me so uncomfortable, not the people, but the wondering of, oh my goodness, someone else might see this and then they're gonna pepper me with questions, just like the Pharisees peppered the disciples with. And sometimes I found myself when I was younger going, why are they, why are they hanging out with that person? And sometimes it's even been people who had just a different theology than me. I mean, like, there was, there was a pastor. I'm not going to say that his name, but there was a pastor in the West Coast for a number of years. And I, I, I had one interaction with this guy, and he, uh, he shamed me, and I did not like this guy. And so um, I, I did not want him to do anything good. And so I'd see my friends with this guy, and I'd be like, whatever, whatever, whatever. The Pharisee and me, not appropriate, not acceptable. But what if around that table they were having conversations and my friends were kind of helping that pastor experience what grace and truth and peace in Christ was all about? See, this is, this is what we have to be, is, is, and this is what it invites us into, is to take us out of our brain and into a dependency. And that is one of the scariest places of faith. Because it forces you to have an ear tuned to heaven and tuning out what everyone else might say and being so present to going, Jesus, I want you to work. I want you to move. I want you to do something in my midst. I want to be stretched. I want to be taught. I, want to, I, I don't want anything that's going to hold people back from experiencing you. 
One of my favorite things about Instagram is seeing on Instagram stories or on Facebook some of the places that you all go and the crews that you all hang out with. And some of you, you are in like the city and chopping it up with people and, and situations. And I'm like, now I'm at this point in my life, I'm like, yes, like be in that space and honor the kingdom. Some of you are in different spots that I probably could never get into or would ever want to be in. But like, yes, thanks be to God. The church is there and there are people who are humble and open. But the question we always have to ask is, is it appropriate? Is it acceptable? Is it appropriate? Is it acceptable? And is it a place that I can hold that tension and still trust that God can be honored through my life? You live like that, people are going to talk trash about you because you're going to be around some tax collectors and sinners. But you know who else is around them? Jesus and the Spirit. And it will stretch you. And that's what I long for. It's not trying to do a new thing, but actually get back to the old thing, what Jesus kept doing. Let's sit with people, mourn with people, rejoice with people, and allow people to experience what Christ is truly all about. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and let's just remember, if you're new here, we got Connect Point. My friends will be down here. Um, hey, if, if you have not signed up for How to Read the Bible, um, a couple of us are teaching. I'm so excited about this. This is going to be just us diving in how to read this book. And, man, the team, our team has just been fired up about this. You can sign up, join. But we're reading Luke 6. Come ready, come ready, come ready. Leonard's got a word for next weekend. But would you put your hands out? And I'd love to give you a blessing. My brothers and sisters of Force Creek Elgin. Did I say Fort Home? Brothers and sisters of Forest City, Elgin. Oh, thank you. You're awesome. Thank you. I was like, my eyes were closed. I'm like, who's hugging me right now? <laughs> thank you. I hate messing up. Uh, thank you. <laughs> You're awesome. My brothers and sisters of Forest City, Elgin. May we experience grace. <laughs> and also, may this week, we hold the space for your grace, your peace, your truth. May we keep tables where seats are open. May we put ourselves in spaces where critiques will come, questions will come, but also we know that your truth and your love and your grace will come. Stretch us. We're not trying to do a new thing. We're trying to do what you have been teaching us for thousands of years. We love you. We love you. We love you. Grace and peace, my friends.